0: Well, join me in your Bibles, if you will, please, to Job 16. This morning, we're going to go to Job 16. We're in between series. And last week, we finished up our Ruth series, Journey into the Unknown. And next week, we'll launch a six-part series on the unstoppable church. And so this is one of those weeks kind of in between, looking at a text. And so we'll study together here in Job 16. Now, I, I kind of... I'm one of those guys that really hates when you end a series, especially like the book of Ruth. I think we had 11 different messages and uh, finally came to the end of preparing it and preaching it and then it was done. And now you can't revisit it for several years until everybody forgets what happened to Ruth and then we can start over again. Um, but uh, you may be thinking like, why is it such a big deal? Why so sad about that? Don't, don't make fun of me. You, you're the same guy that sits there and cries when the football season is over and you're like, oh man, we got to wait till next season. Or you ladies with your Hallmark series and your shows, you're all crying because you got to wait another season. And uh, so for me as a preacher, it's the end of a series and teaching and preaching through a text. And uh, so that's where I get my sadness. But we're going to go to Job 16 here in just a minute. And I remember back in 1993, 1993, I stood on this very platform on a Sunday night. I was 15 years old and I preached a message, my very first message. Brother Chan McMillan was the pastor, and he gave me the opportunity. I had surrendered to preach and surrendered to full-time Christian service. Didn't know what that looked like and what that was going to entail, but just a 15-year-old excited to be serving God, and he gave me the opportunity to preach on that Sunday night. So I dug into Job chapter 1, and I did the most study that I knew how to do, and I was studying the text, and I was reading, and I was making all of these notes, and I brought it to the pulpit that night, and I stood before the church family. We turned to Job chapter one. I read the text and I gave all of my thoughts on Job chapter one. And five minutes into it, I said, all right, let's pray. We're done. And uh, we're like, what? Five minute message. Like, I give announcements longer than if my first sermon. And I just, you know, some of you are like, man, I wish it was his first sermon again. But when we look at Job, I think I was scarred from that moment because I've only preached from the book of Job in 26 years one other time, and so we're coming back to it today in Job 16. Maybe I'll venture back into the book of Job, but uh, special memories from 26 years ago. When we get to Job 16, let me give you the cliff notes of what's taken place already in this story. In Job 1, we know very well that he's lost everything. He loses his possessions, his property, his family with his children, He loses his employees. He loses really everything in a matter of hours. It's gone. And Job responds quite commendably in that text. It says, naked came I out of my mother's womb, naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all of this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. So in a matter of hours, he loses everything, yet Job responds in such an incredible way. In Job chapter number two, Job is hit with sores, boils from top to bottom in verse number seven. And he sits among the ashes and he takes shattered pieces of pottery to scrape off these boils from his body. We see that in verse number eight. And then Mrs. Job in verse number nine tells him to just renounce God, to curse God, and to die. So that's Job's life in chapter number two. In verse number 11 of that chapter, his three friends show up. The text tells us, for they made an appointment together to come to mourn with him and to comfort him. And it definitely started well with these three friends. In verses 12 and 13, when they lifted up their eyes afar off and knew him not, this again is in chapter number 2, they lifted up their voices and they wept with him. They rent every one of his mantle, they sprinkled dust upon their heads toward heaven. So they sat down with him upon the ground for seven days and seven nights, and none of them spake a word unto him, for they saw that his grief was great. But they're about to hear how Job would respond to this situation in his life. Now, when you study Job chapter 1, you end at the end of chapter 1, and we really just we, we, we salute Job. We raise him up as quite a hero for how he responds in Job chapter 1 for everything that took place in his life. As I quoted in verse 20, 21, 22, in all of this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Chapter 2, verse number 10, when he responds to Mrs. Job about just curse God and die, he says, he says, what? Shall we receive good at the hand of God and shall not re receive evil? And then it says, in all of this, Job sinned, did not sin with his lips. So we would say, Wow, Job, you're very commendable, but as long as we stop there, that's our end point and our end thought of Job. But when we study chapter three, of chapter three all the way to chapter 41, we really begin to see a few things about the reality of the humanness of Job. He was just like you and me. In Job chapter three, verse three, he says, "Let the day perish wherein I was born." In verse 11, he says, "Why died I not from the womb?" Verse 26 of chapter three, "I was not in safety, neither had I rest, neither was I quiet, yet trouble came." So Job's in a lot of despair. He's gone from not cursing God, not uh, sinning with his lips, and not being angry with God to now in chapter 3, why was I even born? Why do I do everything right, but yet trouble still comes? And so his friends respond in these very dark moments of Job's life. And in chapter 4 and 5 of Job, we'll find that Eliphaz, he is the oldest of the three friends, and he jumps right in in chapter number 4 and 5. In chapter number 8, Bildad adds his thoughts, and then in chapter number 11, Zophar wants to come and make his opinion known too. And so we'd say, well, how in the world does Job respond? Well, in chapter number 16, we come to Job's response after these three friends have shared their opinions, their knowledge, their wisdom, and their minds. Verse number 1, Job chapter 16, then Job answered and said, I have heard many such things Miserable comforters are you all. Wow. He doesn't mince words. He doesn't beat around the bush. Shall vain words have an end? Or what emboldened thee that thou answerest? I also could speak as you do. If your soul were in my soul's stead, I could heap up words against you and shake mine head at you. But I would strengthen you with my mouth, or I would encourage you with my mouth. And the moving of my lips should assuage your grief or relieve your grief. Though I speak, my grief is not assuaged. And though I forbear, what am I eased? But now he hath made me weary. Thou hast made desolate all my company. And thou hast filled me with wrinkles, which is a witness against me. And my leanness rising up in me beareth witness to my face. He teareth me in his wrath, who hateth me. He gnasheth upon me with his teeth. Mine enemy sharpens his eyes upon me. Then they have gaped upon me with their mouth. They have smitten me upon the cheek reproachedly. They have gathered themselves together against me. God hath delivered me to the ungodly and turned me over into the hands of the wicked. I was at ease, but he hath broken me asunder. He hath also taken me by my neck and shaken me to pieces and set me up for his mark. His archers compass me about. He cleaveth my reins asunder and doth not spare. He poureth out my gall upon the ground. He breaketh me with the breach upon breach. He runneth upon me like a giant. I have sown sackcloth upon my skin and defiled my horn in the dust. My face is foul with weeping and on my eyelids is the shadow of death. Not for any injustice in mine hands. Also my prayer is pure." O earth, cover not thou my blood, and let my cry have no place. Also now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and my record is on high. My friends scorn me, but mine eye pours out tears unto God. O that one might plead for a man with God, as a man pleadeth for his neighbor. When a few years are come, then I shall go the way whence I shall not return. In this chapter, Job responds... In verse number two, miserable comforters are you all. This morning, we look at such a harsh text in Job 16, but I think we can find some encouragement of how important it is that we be good comforters to one another to people that God brings into our life, the relationships that we have, the treasure that we have to know someone who is going through a very dark and gruesome time. May we never be described as miserable comforters. Let's let's ask God to guide us and then we'll dig in. Father, we need your guidance in this text today. I thank you that the story of Job has been recorded in your holy word with absolute truth for us to be able to read and to learn from, to digest, and to be sharpened by. This morning, I know that there are probably some here that are just saying, miserable comforters, I don't even attach to that. I'm the guy that needs comfort. I'm the one going through the storm. But really, Lord, as we look at this target today, we're looking at all of us not so self-focused on our own needs, but more of how do we help other people? How can we be of an encouragement, a guide, a strength, a shoulder to cry on, somebody to lean upon, somebody to give words of wisdom and comfort in their life? And so use this time of the book of Job in this chapter to guide us and help us to grow. In Jesus' name, amen. So you've heard the saying, with friends like you, who needs enemies? Enemies. Man, I think Job's probably there. He's looking at these three guys and they're like, man, who needs friends when I've got enemies like you? Or with friends like you, who needs enemies? And there are two very key truths in this text that I think as we go through life's journey, we can correctly apply these thoughts of what Job is going through so that we would not be described in verse number two as a miserable comforter. In verses one through 14, there is this request for sympathy. Job has heard his friends speak their opinions, and now he's about to tell them, you guys are terrible at this. You guys are terrible comforters. Look at his three friends, Eliphaz. He was from Teman, a place known for its wisdom. You'd see that in Jeremiah chapter 49, verse 7. In that chapter, you would see that this was a place that people were just known for their knowledge and their wisdom and their smarts. And he, Eliphaz, is basing his comments on two things. First, he's basing it on his observations of life. We would see that in this phrase that he says, I have seen. He'll say that in Job 4, 8, 5, 23, and then also in verse 27 of chapter 5. Now, we understand that the observations of our life lend us to good experiences. So we're able to say, I've gone through this, or I have seen this. But it's another thing for us to be able to really come to somebody and say, wow, I've never really seen this before, or I've really not known this before. You know what's really comforting is not the words like, I know how you feel, right? You're like, oh, really? You do? Isn't it a lot more comforting to come and say, man, I don't know what you're going through. I wonder how this feels. I'm sorry. I have observed things and experienced things in my life, but tell me how you feel at this moment. The whole comparison issue really takes out any comfort. And then he also, his response and his comments are going to be seen by a personal experience that he uh, had one night in chapter 4, verses 12 through 21. So this frightening experience, and then all of his observations in life, they come together to cause him to say, oh, Job, I've seen this before. And then with his great knowledge from being from Teman, he's got such great things to share. In chapter 15, we would find that he put great faith and trust in tradition, and so he's going to always fall back on traditional things, and that's where he's going to base his trust on traditional things. And so if it's a little radical, if it's a little different, if you're experiencing something new with someone, well, well, it's got to come back to what I saw and read in this book one time. Somebody says, I'm a lot really book smart, but have no good experience to be able to share with people. And so here was that case where he had a lot of knowledge, but nothing good to share And the view that he had of God was really this inflexible lawgiver. And when you think about the the thought of a God as or our God as an inflexible lawgiver, it really takes out any mercy, fairness, justice, it really takes out any grace, because it's just all very rigid. There's this rigid theology that left little or no room for grace. And that's where Eliphaz is. He is going to approach his strategy of comfort with a very rigid theology. He's going to come at it with his experience of what he has already seen, and he's going to come with his knowledge. Then there's Bildad. He's the second friend. One word to describe him, and that's the word legalist. He was a legalist through and through. His life verse would have been Job chapter 8, verse 20, that said, Behold, God will not cast away a perfect man, neither will he help the evildoers. He would quote ancient Proverbs, not from Solomon, but from other parts of the world. He would quote these ancient Proverbs, and he had a great respect for tradition. And for some reason, he was confident that Job's children died because they were sinners, chapter 8, verse 4. Now, can you imagine that comfort? Job's lost his 10 kids, and the comfort that he gets from one of his friends is that, yeah, your kids died because they're sinners, That probably didn't help a whole lot. That probably fed to his response that said, dude, you're just a terrible comforter. The man seemed to have no sympathy for his hurting friend. Then there's Zophar. Zophar, the third friend, he's the most dogmatic of the group. He he knows what he believes, he's going to say it, and he's not going to say it graciously, he's not going to say it tactfully, and he's just going to spout out and he is going to say it. He speaks like a teacher who would address a room of, maybe ignorant freshmen who are just all over the place. And he says, know this, chapter 11, verse 6, chapter 20, verse 4. And his approach is unfeeling and totally disconnected from the moment that Job is in. And so he's merciless. He tells Job that God is giving him far less judgment than what he deserves, chapter 11, verse 6. Hey, hey, husbands, try that with your wife sometime. Uh, See how far that goes. Or uh, try that with your friend next time. Well, just be thankful because you're not experiencing any near what God should be doing to you. Um, yeah, I don't think that really goes under that whole comforting thought. So these men had, they had some truth that they were sharing with Job in these chapters. There was some truth, but there was also some very foolish statements as well. See, their viewpoint was too narrow to be of any help to a hurting or suffering Job. Their theology lacked vibrancy, it, uh, it, it lacked uh, vitality, it lacked um, any part of, of relational aspects. It was all about book knowledge, it was all about what they knew, and they, they had a cookie cutter response, each one of them, based on the circumstance that they were in. And so, and so we would say, well, why in the world would they respond this way? And I think that Job gives us a little insight about why their, his friends would respond. Why were they in this situation? Why were they so angry in their response? In Job chapter 6, verse 21, he says this, "'For now you are nothing.'" This is Job saying to his friends, "'For now you are nothing.'" What does that mean? That means you have, you have proved to be no help. He says, "'You are nothing. You have proven to be no help.'" You see my casting down. You see something dreadful in my life, and you are afraid. So Job says, why are you so angry, guys? Why are you responding this way? You have been absolutely no help with the things that you have said. You have seen my dreadful case, my terrible situation, and all you have in your response is your own fear. Was it fear to let their guard down? I believe there was some part of their fear and anger came because they didn't want to be next in Job's situation. I mean, these guys ultimately believed that what Job was experiencing was the wrath of God on his life. Now, we look back thousands of years later because we have the text and we can see what happened in Job chapter 1. How the enemy of God and how, the, how Satan came and uh, was given permission to take things away from Job and how he was able to strike his health but could not take his life. So yeah, we get, we get a little glimpse of that. But if we didn't know chapter number one, how many of us in here just have it in us that we're going to respond like his three friends responded? Like how many of us in here, like that just becomes our natural thing. Somebody suffering, well, it's probably just God's judgment. You lost your children? Well, that's just because they're sinners. You're going through issues? Yeah, just be glad it's not this, but you got this. All rigid theology that lacks life and grace. And so do we ever respond that way because we're afraid? Or do we ever respond that way because we're angry? You notice that sometimes when we try to comfort somebody, we miss the mark because we're dealing with our own anger issues. Like maybe we didn't appreciate how they responded or what they said or who they are or what they do. Or maybe we're just angry at life ourselves, Or maybe we look at somebody else's situation where they could use some comfort and we're like, yeah, if they only knew half of what my life was like, they wouldn't have their own pity party. That comes out of a spirit of anger. That comes out of an own insecurity instead of looking to the needs of someone else. So God allowed Job to be used to really destroy their shallow theology and to challenge them to go deeper into the heart and mind of God. That's what Job is going to do. Job's circumstance, not being judged because of sin, it robbed them of their peace and their confidence. Now This made them respond out of fear and anger. Here's what Paul Turnier said. It's in your notes, but we are nearly always longing for an easy religion, easy to understand and easy to follow. Now listen, a religion with no mystery, no insoluble problems, no snags, a religion that would allow us to escape from our miserable human condition, a religion in which contact with God spares us all strife, all uncertainty, all suffering, and all doubts. In short... We're looking for a religion without the cross. When you think about that, we so often forget about the call to discipleship, where Jesus Christ said, if you're going to truly follow after me, it means that you're going to deny yourself and take up your cross in order that you can follow me. The call to discipleship was so great in the New Testament that all of the multitude that would follow Jesus day in and day out to see the next miracle, to experience what God was going to do, to sit and listen to the teaching of Jesus. And all of that though, when the cost of discipleship came where rubber meets the road, the Bible tells us in the Gospel of John that many walked away, never to follow again. Why? Because the cost of discipleship or the cost of following Christ is, is real and it's heavy. And so we look to follow after Jesus Christ because we hope that everything's going to be smooth sailing. If things don't turn out well, we wonder why it's even worth to follow Jesus Christ. We want a religion. We want a relationship. We want something that has no snag. We want something that has no suffering. We want something that's not going to bog us down. We want smooth sailing in life. And here we're reminded in Job's life that following after God does not always mean, never means, smooth sailing with no snacks. So when the heartaches come, how will we respond? What's going to take place? In verse 4 and 5, Job states that if the roles were switched, he would treat them with understanding and comfort. Doesn't that seem to be the way in life? The people who share the most comfort are the ones who've gone through the hardest of times. The ones who are able to sympathize and empathize with others are the ones who've had some really difficult times in their own life. We understand that trials are either going to make us better or bitter, and hopefully they're going to make us better so that we're able to use that to comfort others and to pour into other people. We use our observations. We can be like Eliphaz. We can go through circumstances in life and see all of our observations that we experience. And we can come to the table knowing in our own heart and mind how that person must be feeling, how they must be suffering without having to use the words ourselves to try to denounce their feelings and suffering in order to lift ourselves up. Sometimes we fall into that trap and we really think too highly of ourselves. We really go the opposite of Philippians chapter 2 and we're so self-focused that we forget to look on the needs of other people. Now, we look around the auditorium, and as you look from pew to pew and person to person, uh, this is just seems like a, a group of, uh, made up of, of people who have life figured out, have everything fine in life, no problems. Because when you walk up to them and say, how was your week? Oh, it was great. It was good. Good. God's good all the time. In their mind, they're thinking, I really don't know that to be true, right? <laughs> and you look at them, they're holding hands as they walk out the door, and you're like, man, I wish I had a marriage like them. They get in the car and right at each other, right? (laughs) You were holding my hand too tight. Well, I shouldn't even hold your hand. You know? Yeah. So we look around and we think, man, everybody's doing okay except for me. But the reality is, is when you look around at a church family like this, we are all so dysfunctional. You are. Because you're led from a dysfunctional leader, all Right? (laughs) So I know you've got to be dysfunctional. And we're just trying to survive. That's when new people come in. I say, you just come into a group of people who are normal, real people who are just trying each and every day to know Christ more and to be more into his image. That's our goal. That's our desire. And that's sanctification. So we're set apart from the world. We have to live in the spirit. We have to walk in the spirit, being filled by the Holy Spirit. But as you look across this crowd and look at one another, don't assume anything. Assumptions get you in trouble. Assumptions get me in trouble all the time. Yeah. So don't assume anything. You look into the eyes of an individual that's your brother or sister in Christ and have a meaningful conversation with them. When my accountability partners look at me and they say, how are you doing? I'm like, yeah, things are good. Things are going well. They can look into my eyes and say, no, I'm not asking you for a quick response. Let's be real with each other. And so sometimes we need to let down our guards and have those kind of conversations and ask God to allow us to be of a comfort to one another. So we need to make verse number five really a goal for this week. Would you look at verse number five again? Job chapter 16. But I would strengthen you with my mouth. I would encourage you he says, and the moving of my lips should assuage your grief or it relieve your grief. Job says, if the roles were switched, this would be my goal. This would be my desire, that I would encourage you, that I would strengthen you, and that I would relieve you from your pain. Can you make that as a goal this week? Can you say, God, would you take verse number five and would you make that a reality in my week as I deal with kids, my children in my home, as I deal with my spouse, my husband, my wife, as I deal with my fellow employee, uh, employee mates, uh, co-workers, as I deal with my employer, as I deal with people in my life, would you allow me to be, to be a blessing and encouraging with my mouth and that I would relieve people from their grief? You know what? Let's pray right now. God, we need your help so that we would be an encouragement to other people. For some, that's a a spiritual gift. It comes very naturally. They're very compassionate, and they're very much an encourager. But somebody says, well, you know, it's just not my spiritual gift. That's no excuse. You don't just just throw it away and say, well, I don't don't need to be a bearer of grace with my lips. Because in James, we're taught that. In Ephesians chapter 4, we're taught that. We're taught that our speech should be, um, the, the hearers of my speech should be given grace and edification, So this week, collectively, we commit ourselves to you, to be an encourager with our lips, and to be a relief from somebody's grief. I don't know what that looks like practically, but I know that I want to do that in my life. And so would you help us this week? Amen. Ironside wrote this. It was an illustration about this thought, and he said, he thinks it's a pastor friend of his that wrote this, Pastor Dolman. And he says, I believe I heard him tell how he was sitting at his desk one day when he heard the the door creak to his office, and suddenly there was a sharp cry of pain. Looking up from his desk, he saw his little daughter who had started to enter the room when her little fingers had been caught in the door. I hate that. So he jumped, and he called the mother to come. You better come and look after this little girl. The mother came and taking the child said tenderly, does it hurt so dreadfully? Oh, mommy, it hurts so bad, said the child. But the worst is that daddy didn't even say, oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) We like people who say to us, oh, I'm sorry. That little girl had it right on target. You know, some of us are just so busy in life. We're so consumed or we want easy patches. We want easy responses. It's going to be fine. Don't worry. Don't fret. It's going to be okay. And sometimes that seems to be our natural response. It doesn't have to come from somebody with compassion that's going to take a moment to say, oh, I'm really sorry. Because that can come from within all of us that we're not a miserable comforter, but being led by the Holy Spirit, we too can be an encouragement and help to others. Job will take the next several verses, verses 6 through 14, to express his viewpoint of how he believes God has has painted this target on him so that the archers will shoot and, and, and everything will be targeted right at him. That's where he's at. That's what he believes. And so here, Job is going to request for affirmation in verses 15 through 22. He's looking for sympathy. He's looking for this comfort. And now he's looking for some type of support. He's looking for some kind of affirmation. And in verse number 15, he's he references this sackcloth that was used in the ancient Near East as a method of mourning. And so what they would do is they would tear their clothes and sometimes they would even shave their heads and then they would lament and mourn over the situation. We saw that in chapters 1 and 2 and even saw his friends participate in that way. Now, I'm not shaving my head to hurt with you, all right? So we're not, we're not going back to that tradition. But I can cry with you. I can mourn with you. I can weep with you. In verse number 15, also he says, they defiled my horn in the dust. This was a statement of humility. And what takes place is that the Asian deities and rulers would wear this big horned headdress as a symbol of their power. And the horn was being dishonored, and when it was being dishonored, it was brought down to the dust of the earth, and it was cut off by their enemies. And so Job is referencing this as his his spirit of humility, knowing that he has nothing before god psalm 75:10 even brings us to this thought that all the horns or the strength of the wicked also will i cut off and this is to humble them and then it continues but the horns or the strength of the righteous shall be exalted remember humble yourselves in the sight of the lord and what he will lift you up and so verse 16 17 and 18 job defends his innocence he says, I have cried to the point of no more tears in verse 16. He says, my prayer is pure and not selfish in verse 17. And then he says, I will not stop crying or pleading until I find some peace in verse number 18. So this is certainly not a thread. It's just a statement of brokenness by Job. The emotions that we have been given are a gift from God. Several of us in here attest to the fact that. That our emotions at times in different seasons of our life are are up and down or just all over the place. And when we look at these emotions and this grieving of when things happen in our life, we're reminded that there's a time to weep and a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn and a time to dance. There is a time to be grieving and there's a time to celebrate. There's a, a time for sadness and a time to rejoice. And so that is a part of God's gift to us is this gift of emotions. And it's being able to properly balance those emotions. Some people have the tendency to just always be doom and gloom, and that's not a proper balance of the gift of emotions that God has given them. There are some people who just want to be extremely happy all the time and pretend like nothing bothers them or that nothing is ever wrong. And so that is an improper balance of the emotions that God has given them. If you've seen the movie 2015, Inside Out, we watched that again this past Friday with the girls with some popcorn and M&Ms. And uh, it's the, uh, how many of you know Inside Out? It's got the, all the emotions and uh, it's got the five emotions with fear and anger. And what's the green girl? Disgust. Disgust. Thank you, Elizabeth. She's right on. All right. She was quick on that one. All right. And then there's joy and there's Sadness. And joy and sadness are going throughout the whole movie where joy thinks that like, the little girls should just be always joy, 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 until realizing that there's a proper balance of the emotions. And there's some times in life where we, we just need to be sad. And there's sometimes times where this, it's overwhelming and there's grief. And so Job is going through this. And people around us, we understand that the emotions and the seasons of our emotions are an important part of who we are. In verse 19 through 21, his request of affirmation or support, he, he's really looking for somebody to partner with him to plead his case before God. You know, that's the power of having a prayer partner through your journey. It's being able somebody to partner with you to, to, to plead your case before God. It's to ask for comfort. It's to ask for defense. It's, it's to ask for Jesus Christ as our intercessor to to do his part, and to make it real in our life. It is that partnership as a friend that helps to defend us, to be an advocate, to uh, bear our burdens with. And so many of us in here, we have longed for someone to plead our messy life before God before. We've gone to God on our own behalf, and, and when somebody is willing to say, how can I pray with you or can I pray even right now? It's somebody that's saying, it's, it's going further beyond just, oh, I'm really sorry, I'll pray for you, and then walking away and totally forgetting. It's somebody that comes beside you and says, let's pray right now. Hey, hey, um, can you, can, I'm going to set this reminder so that I'll, I'll pray. I remember Rand Hummel, uh, Wilds of New England, we support him monthly in the ministry there, the camp in uh, New Hampshire. And every week, I check in on him about Monday or Tuesday, and I just say, what's going on at camp? How can I pray for you? And right now, we're praying just for his physical body and breaking down with his back and just a lot of pains and aches and pains. But I mean, he's an old guy. He's like in his 60s, all right? So he's an old dude, right? (laughs) Sorry, all right? Uh, Wait, uh, let's comfort. Let's, uh, Let's get some comfort here, all right? So he's breaking down and we're praying for that, but he always gets right to the real stuff to partner in prayer. And he always gives me a name of a teenager to pray for their soul or to, to pray for this situation that they're going through. And, and, uh, and so we often pray together for that individual. And it's, it's coming alongside that says, as you go through this, because he says, hey, pray for me at 1115 on Tuesday morning. I've got a meeting with this teen girl and I just really need wisdom and, and God to show me what to say and how to help her. And I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to be at a graveside service at 11, but I'll set my alarm, and at 11.15, I'll make sure I'm praying. And uh, so that's the type of partnership that we can have with each other. It's setting that alarm that reminds me, you know what? I was engaged in Pastor Richardson's graveside service for Laura Morton until my little watch started to vibrate, and I looked down, and it says, pray for Rand Hummel and -and so-and-so as they're meeting right now. And so it's saying, God, let this be a real passion and a real desire that I I partner with people to help them through what they're going through. Nobody likes problems. We don't even like problems in our own life, let alone, I don't want to deal with your problems, right? And so we feel that way. And we're like, I've got my kids' problems, I've got my wife's problems, I've got my problems, I've got their problems. The last thing I need, would you just be quiet? I don't want your problems. But that's a wrong perspective. Because God has a purpose and a reason for that God moment that you were in that conversation or you heard that plea or you heard that burden and that need, and now how will you be a comforter of that? Verse number 22, the journey to death has no return passage. We know that. The journey to death has a finale, is going into eternity, no longer here on earth. And so what are we going to do with this life here? And that life will finally come to an end, and probably Job is looking forward to that end at this moment as he's saying, how will this finally come to no return? LeBron James is either somebody you like or hate. In regards to that, he has this tattoo I saw three or four years ago on his arm that says, what we do in life echoes for eternity. I don't think LeBron James is a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm pretty confident of that, and I'm pretty sure he's not a pastor or a preacher, but he does have some truth to that saying on his arm. When you see that, what we do in life echoes for eternity. We know that as believers, that the rewards and crowns that we, that we earn, that we'll be able to lay at the feet of Jesus Christ one day. But also the decision that you make today for your eternity is crucial and important. John chapter 3, verse 16 tells us about the gift of love, and that is that God himself gave his only son, Jesus Christ, to die on your behalf. Romans 6 tells us that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I had a conversation with someone this week that just didn't think that there was only one way to heaven. And John fourteen six is where Jesus said, with the absolute tr- truth, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. And there may be somebody in here where you're trying to think that there's going to be multiple opportunities or multiple ways in order for you to get to heaven one day. But the truth is, is that there is only one way. And you may say, well, that's ignorant for you to believe that. No, it's powerful to believe that. And it is by faith that we believe that. And it's life transforming to believe that. You bank your thoughts on multiple gods, multiple avenues, or multiple ways to get to heaven, and you look to check your own heart to see what peace and comfort comes when you have to face the reality of death one day. Because as you face your death, you're going to wonder, did I do enough? Did I say the right thing? Am I in the right place? Do I believe in the right way? But there's that confidence that comes when it's all turned into Jesus and only Jesus. and He's the only way. The goal of love there in John 3, 16 is that none should perish but have everlasting life. So this goal of love was that God did not send his son to the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And so the goal of love is for all man to come to know Jesus Christ. Though we know that just won't happen, there are millions and millions of people who will go down the wide pathway to the large gate who will enter eternity in hell forever But the passion and reality comes to the church that says, how do I tell others about the love and grace of Jesus Christ? So Job's messy life, it did take a turn for the better. As we would find after this passage, there's going to be much more that goes back and forth. Even in chapter number 18, we see Bildad's second speech. And boy, by the time we finally get to the end of Job and Job chapter 42, there's a lot that has been said. There's a lot that has taken place but in Job 42, Job confesses his lack of understanding and he repents of his rebellion against God. He says enough is enough. And in verse chapter 42, verse number seven, and it was so that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, my wrath is kindled against thee and against thy two friends, for you have not spoken of me the thing that is right, as my servant Job hath. Wow. How devastating would that be for God to tell you the things you have said to comfort somebody else has not been of God? The things that you have thought you are doing to be a help has been the total opposite of godliness. That's what God's telling Eliphaz and his two friends. And so God is going to restore Job with double what he had before. He blesses him. In verse number 17 of chapter 42, Job dies being old and full of days. What that means is in the Hebrew that he was satisfied and full of life. So the lessons we learn here as a comforter, as John Henry Jowett said, God does not comfort us to make us comfortable, but to make us comforters. And so God's comfort is never given, it's it's always on loan to us. God expects us to share it with others. Parents, what's your home like? Is your home just geared to the negativity of life? Always something to complain about. Always something to go against. Always something that is against you. Never anything that God is just using you to stretch your faith or to push you forward or to sharpen you to be better. That's never your conclusion. It's always that life can't get any worse. If that's the home you want to have, you're going to produce kids who will then have that same mentality all through life. But if you just will realize that in the moments of distress, God loans comfort so that we can turn that into comfort for other people. The truth is is some of us in here are going through some dark days, some confusion, some fear, some insecurity, some some things that we just have the unknown before us. How will you respond to that and how will you use it to make you better? To those who need comfort today, as someone in Job's shoes, whenever you conclude that God isn't perfect, remember he is. And whenever you feel that life is hopeless, it isn't. And then whenever the enemy of our souls whispers that God doesn't care, remember he does. In Job 13, verse 15, he said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Wow. That's why Job is so so often praised. His response in chapter 1 and chapter 2, in the middle of this story in chapter 13, he says, though he slay me, I will trust him. Where are you today? Are you trusting him? Are you taking the comfort he gives to you and passing that on to others? May we never be described as miserable comforters ever in our life.